And that's really, really good. Because there's something that happens when we go to the lake. It becomes this place of peace for us, doesn't it? It's like we go there, and I don't know that I've ever heard anyone say that they had a nightmare when they were staying at the lake. Because all of the anxiety goes away. Unless you're the mom cooking for the big fish, right? Then, you know, th- then maybe so. Um, Jesus understood the lake. He understood the lake culture. Uh, there's some really cool things. When you begin to look at Jesus' ministry, um, in uh, 2011, I had a chance to go to Israel. And I went as a part of a group of ministers. There was this, there's this rich guy down in Atlanta, and um, his deal was he wanted to pour into ministers and to do something that would allow them to, to finish their ministries long-term in a healthy place. And so he provided all of the money for a group of of 17 of us to go and spend two weeks, uh, 11 days, in Israel. Incredibly cool thing. Just a a transforming thing for me that was was dynamic, and I'm I'm so grateful to to experience that. So we go to Israel, and and we land, go from um, Tel Aviv, and and, uh, the first week we spent around the Sea of Galilee. Now, I don't know about you, but... Um, for me, when I look at the, the, um, at the maps at the back of the Bible that show the Sea of Galilee, and I look at a map of the United States, the Sea of Galilee is big. You know, it compares to like half of the U.S. when you, see, you do those two. That's a joke, okay? It's not really that big. But I grew up thinking, oh, the Sea of Galilee is huge. You know, it's probably like Lake Erie, Lake Michigan, Lake Superior. It's like one of the Great Lakes. And we, and we come down the hill in Tiberias and see the Sea of Galilee for the first time. And you know what? It's not big at all. It's five miles wide and 12 miles long. Now, that's big for me compared to Crystal Lake. Crystal Lake is, is one mile by two miles. So it's bigger than that. But around the Sea of Galilee, you can see across it on most days in all directions. You can see the length of the 12 miles as long as it's not too hazy. You can see across the five miles very, very easily. It's a, it's a crazy deal um, to understand that Jesus grew up in that lake culture. Let me show you a couple, couple pictures just for fun. Uh, first picture, um, this is a lake in Brazil. Um, Deb and I had a chance to go with my aunt and uncle to Brazil several years ago. We were out um, looking for birds and canoeing on this lake at, at sunset. Incredibly cool deal. Um, that's the picture of peace that's there. Now go to the next slide. This is, uh, this is Crystal Lake up near Carson City. Uh, my family's been going there every year for the 4th of July since before I was born. And um, when I think of the lake, I think, I think of Crystal. There's this place of peace. For Jesus, that experience happened as well. It was a place of peace, but it was also the place that created the context, the culture for where Jesus went to begin to preach. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and take one out because I'm going to kind of buzz through the, through the greater part of Matthew 1 before we get to the verses that are going to be up on screen. If you don't have a Bible, uh, let me just say again, we would love to have you take one. Um, out in the, in the lobby area as you leave, there's a, there's a welcome area. Stop by there, and we've got some paperback Bibles that, that are ESVs that we would love to have you have. And when, when you have it and read along, you'll be able to, to do that on, on Sunday mornings. Um, when, 
when I was in Israel and we're looking out at the Sea of Galilee and we began to tour and see the different cities, Capernaum um, and, and uh, Bethsaida and Magdala and those places, and I began to get a grasp on the, the geographic layout for, for Jesus' ministry, it was astounding to me. Uh, again, I, I know that Jesus walked places. You know, that that's what he did to go from place to place. That was the culture. They obviously didn't have cars, you know, didn't do the horse thing. But I didn't realize how small it was. The, all of Jesus' Galilean ministry took place in a geographic space that was smaller than from Grand Ledge to Langsburg to St. John's. The whole Galilean ministry took place, and it, it's actually probably a little bit closer to DeWitt to St. John's to Langsburg or to Grand Ledge that kind of space. It's a really small area that was full of small towns. We think about Capernaum and, and we think about this large, thriving city. It was basically a small fishing town that was right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, not a lot of people. Um, I, first service, I said right off the top of my head, 400 people. And I think it was greater than that, b bigger than that. But, but it, was, uh, um, it was less than 1,000. Not a lot of people in Capernaum. Um, so Jesus' ministry takes place so that you know, um, as you read through the book of Mark, you'll see lots and lots of action that takes place. Um, if you're here this morning and you've got questions about whether the whole Jesus thing is true, um, if, you know, if, if, if you're a skeptic and you're thinking, eh, I'm not sure I'd buy the whole thing, let me encourage you, read through the book of Mark, and one of the things that you'll see is that um, throughout Mark, um, Events happen identified with places, places that could be confirmed. You'll see that action sequence and know that when Mark wrote um, that biography of Jesus, that there were people around that could say, that's not a real place. What are you talking about? That's not a real town. Or they could say, oh, no, that didn't happen here. That happened here. Just like any biography that's written in a contemporary time frame. Um, Mark, the, the book of Mark was written by John Mark. Uh, he, he, of the four Gospels, he wasn't probably an eyewitness to much of what happened. Much of his um, information would have come from the Apostle Peter. He spent lots of time with Peter, and, and um, tradition tells us that his uh, content came through Peter to Mark. Mark probably experienced some things with Jesus, but he wasn't one of the twelve. John Mark wasn't one of the twelve. Um, and so... Uh, that may make you think, wait a second, can we really rely on Mark? Pause for a second and just think uh, about a biography that you read. Rarely are biographies written by a person that's a first-person witness of everything that they, that they write about. Most biographers will interview lots of different people when they begin to tell their story. And, and so um, we can trust Mark's account through Peter because it's confirmed by history by the people around um, and to know that that came from a first person account. It's kind of like um, Bill Belichick, uh, the, co the coach of the Patriots. Um, if a biographer would do extensive interviews, spend lots and lots of time with Tom Brady to write the biography of Bill Belichick. You know what, that's a, that's a biography I'd like to read to see Bill Belichick through the eyes of, of Tom Brady. Um, we're, get, we're getting Jesus through the words of Mark, but probably through the eyes of Peter. Uh, 
if you look at Mark chapter 1 and, and just look at the beginning, there's no mention really of the birth of Jesus. It's different than, um, than the book of Matthew or the book of Luke that tell uh, either the genealogy of Jesus or an extended version of the birth of Jesus. Mark jumps right in to talking about Jesus and talking about John the Baptist. Um, and out of that, then he talks about the baptism of Jesus, his temptation, the calling of the first disciples where Jesus says to Peter, James, uh, 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 Peter, Andrew, James, and John, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And then I'm going to start to read, and I'm actually reading in NIV to just give you some context of the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. I'm, I'm starting down at verse 21. They went out to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. Pause for just a second and look on screen. Those are ruins in Capernaum of the synagogue that exists there. It's about 40 yards, maybe 60 yards from the shore of the Sea of Galilee. This, these particular ruins are from the synagogue in about the 4th century. This area is a, it's a volcanic area that um, ha had experienced some volcanoes and um, earthquakes that made stuff fall. But um, it's built on top of the synagogue that's described here in Mark chapter 1. Incredible thing. Incredible thing to look at that and think, you know what, I'm standing in the place that's talked about here in Mark chapter 1 verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and when Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Interestingly enough, there's... Um, there's historical records that describe where, where um, Simon's house was. I didn't put the pictures up, but it's a walk that is uh, probably about 90 seconds. It's less than a city block from the synagogue to where Peter lived. So in your mind, just kind of picture, um, Jesus walks from the synagogue probably past four homes, an area where there are four homes, and walks to where um, Simon's mother-in-law is there. Verse 30, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about it. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. The evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Now I'm going to jump to ESV. Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Simon and those who were with him searched for him. They found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, 
Let's go to the next town, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Last week I talked just a bit about this sense that Jesus knew who he was. Jesus had a very clear sense of purpose, and today's message really focuses on that again. Jesus, when, when uh, Zacchaeus was in the sycamore tree and was looking for him, and Jesus said, I'm coming to your house, Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. If you look back in your scriptures and maybe on the same page or over one page in chapter 2, Jesus calls another uh, tax collector, a guy named Levi. Verse 13 says, Jesus went out again beside the sea, beside the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a, of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came to seek and save the lost. No, I've got to go preach in this other place. Jesus had a clear sense of his purpose. If you think about it, Jesus could have done a lot of things during his ministry. Jesus could have spent years simply healing people. There is no shortage of people who are sick, who have diseases, who are lame or crippled or blind. Jesus could have invested all of his ministry in healing people. There were, I think, some supernatural things going on. Demon possession was a common deal. Jesus could have spent months just simply going and casting out demons. Jesus had the ability to do miracles, the power to, to take a few loaves and fishes and multiply them and feed people. Jesus could have fed hungry people for years. He could have done that, and that would, those would have all been good things. Jesus could simply have taught in the synagogues, on the hillsides. He could have explained the Old Testament in a way that they had never understood before. Jesus could have done that, and yet he said, I came to seek and save the lost. As a church, for the last year or so, more than that, really, you've heard this, um, this call, this sense to say, as a church, we are absolutely committed to making disciples of Jesus to make him fully devoted followers of Jesus. That's absolutely true. That's a part of who we are. That's a part of our conviction. We hope that you're in that process because that's what God calls us to do and to, and to become, to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. But understand this in the big scheme of things. Discipleship isn't discipleship without building relationships with people who are far from God. If our discipleship is only focused on what's going on inside us and it never has us in contact with lost people, we're missing the point. Because Jesus could, said, I came to seek and save the lost. That may challenge you as you think about how you relate to people at work or in your neighborhood 
how you structure your week to just love on people that are far from God because Jesus said, that's my purpose. Um, uh, can, can you go back to the, to the Mark scripture? Um, the last verse says something really interesting. Um, it says, uh, let's go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. When you, heard the, when you hear the words come out, that has a very specific cultural context for us, right? You, somebody comes out, they're talking about something involved in their life sexually um, in our current culture. It, it, it's, it's about transparency. And Jesus said, you know what? I've got to go preach in these towns. That's why I came out. That's why I, that's why I started my ministry. That's why I've come to do what God has called me to do, to reach lost people. I'm gonna, I want to give you four principles and then two applications, and, and that's really the, the picture of the message today. Four principles from that scripture in, in Mark chapter 1. Here's the first principle, and um, I write these down. Uh, these, these are good things to just help you take that scripture and make some sense of it. Uh, first principle is this. Discovering your purpose doesn't happen accidentally. Discovering your purpose doesn't happen accidentally. Verse 35 says, Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desert to a desolate place, and there he prayed. For Jesus to dis- to discover his purpose, for Jesus to be certain that he needed to go to other towns, he had to spend time with God. He had to have some time away. Um, Jesus isolated himself. If you think about it, for, for me, that's one of the things about being at the lake that's so great. If I go out on a kayak, especially in the morning when there's no boat traffic, man, there's no noise at all. I can hear God very clearly. When I'm sitting on the shore and reading, I can hear God speak. Jesus um, modeled for us the sense that we need to be quiet and to listen. Uh, he shut out the noise. Uh, I don't know about you, but when you leave today and you go out and start the car, if the radio's not already on, what's the first thing that you'll do? Probably even before you put it in the park. Turn the radio on. Always have noise going. When you go home, when you make it home, what's one of the first things that you'll do in your house? Turn the television on. Turn some music on. We have this barrage of noise going on in our heads. Um, we unloaded our stuff on Monday. Everybody that helped, thanks so much. We get our, we're into our house doing the whole thing. I uh, got some furniture for the living room because we didn't move all that stuff. And, um, and Deb said, there's one thing I want in this house. I said, sure, honey, one thing, that's easy. What, what do you want? And she said, no TV in the living room. Yes, that, who, who, what? And I said, okay. Okay, yeah, weird. that's weird, right? No TV in the living room. Let me tell you what, the, the furniture came on Wednesday, and in five days, no TV in the living room. It has been an incredible thing. Because you walk into the living room, sit down on the couch, and it's quiet. It's peaceful. We can talk. We can listen. 
we can just be without the distraction of the noise. If we want to hear God's voice, for Jesus to recognize his purpose, he got away, spent time with God. Second principle, there were demands being made, and Jesus chose to ignore them. If you look at uh, verse uh, 36, Simon and those who were with him searched for him. They searched for him, and they found him, and they said, everybody's looking for you. Jesus, there's all these people that want stuff. They want to be healed. They want demons cast out. They want all this stuff. You've got to go respond. And you know what Jesus said? No. There were demands being made on Jesus, and he ignored them. Do you ever feel like there are demands being made on your life? You know, if you're a kid, your parents are making demands. Your teachers are making demands. If you're an adult, your boss is making demands. Your husband and wife is making demands. Your, your, the house is making demands. Your hobbies, interests, every, all these demands. Peter said, you know what? There are people that need you desperately. And Jesus said, no, my purpose is greater than that right now. Third principle. Jesus knew what to say yes to and what to say no to. As a result of his spending time with God, Jesus recognized where to say yes and where to say no. And that's, I think, the, the difficult thing for us in our lives. Um, verse 38, he said to them, let's go to the next towns that I may preach there also. That is why I came out. Uh, this, this past week, last Sunday, my son, our, our son Joe drove in to help with the unloading. Our daughter Gabrielle, that many of you met last week, had flown in to help get the unload and get the house ready. And so on Monday, after everything's unloaded, um, had a lot of people, everything's inside the house, and um, once everybody left, I'm working in the bedroom, getting our bedrooms put together. Mike is working in his bedroom, getting his, his bedroom put together. Deb's working in the kitchen, getting the kitchen put together, and um, Gabe and Joe are downstairs in the basement organizing the boxes. Uh, so they organized the boxes, put them together according to stuff. They're in rows in the basement, which is cool. We can kind of find stuff. And in the basement where all this stuff was, there's one area that's perfectly clean. It's the area where the ping pong table is. Ping pong table is set up fully ready to go. And I'm thinking, there's probably a hint in there somewhere, Dad, uh, that somebody wants to play ping pong. Well, couldn't do anything the first couple of days. Thursday night, anybody know what Thursday night was? First night of football, rock and roll, yeah. It's the first night of the NFL. So we sit down, eat dinner, and I'm thinking, I'm going to watch the Packers play. It's going to be great. Joe is leaving on Friday. We haven't played ping pong. Ping pong, NFL, ping pong, NFL. And you know what? That's, that's the story of our life. What do we say yes to? What do we say no to? Happy to tell you, I said, Joe, you want to play ping pong? Yeah, I think that'd be pretty fun. So we played ping pong for about an hour and 15 minutes. I ended up watching, you know, the second quarter and the second half of the football game, which was great. Enjoyed just a really terrific time playing ping pong with my son. He drove back home. We're not going to get very many opportunities to play ping pong. Jesus knew what to say yes to and what to say no to. And that's the challenge for us. Fourth principle, um, people wanted Jesus in Capernaum. His purpose was to go in other towns. That's, it's, uh, he recognized what God had called him to do. Even though the people there wanted him there, he knew what God had called him to do, and that's where he went. 
four principles, two applications. The first application is a personal application. Um, The personal application of the scripture is this. Do I know my purpose in life? Am I doing and being what God created me to do and be? That's a big question for us. We wrestle with that. If you're a, if you're a kid or teenager or whatever, you're thinking, ah, oh, man, I don't know what my purpose is in life. How do I find that out? If you're in your 20s, uh, you're probably thinking, well, I got this job. Am I doing what I'm supposed to? If you're in your 40s or 50s, you may be thinking, man, I am right in the center of what God called me to do. Or you may be thinking, I got this job, and I'm not really sure that I'm where I'm supposed to be. Um, when I was 25, uh, when, when I went to college, I went to Cincinnati Christian University. I was a music major in, in college. I had a double major in Bible and music. And, um, and my first ministry was in Columbus. I was a full-time music minister, did choirs and handbells and led worship, all kinds of fun stuff. And, I, and when I was 25, I get this call from this guy in Rockville, Maryland, that says, um, we want you to come serve on staff at our, at our church. And I said, that's cool. I said, we want you to be an associate minister and to work in the area of Christian education and evangelism. And I said, I'm a music guy, got a music degree. I don't know anything about Christian education or evangelism. And he said, we've talked to a whole bunch of people. We think that you're the right guy for us at this point in time. We think that God has chosen you to come to CYMO. And for me, I had to wrestle a ton with, with a core question. Am I a musician that does ministry, or am I a minister that does music? Those are two very different things. And, and my insist- my, what I thought in terms of my purpose in life was that I was going to be a musician that did ministry. But that question, that call to this church, changed everything because ultimately we moved there and I stepped out of music. God brought music stuff back into my life in a really cool way. But that conversation crystallized for me my purpose in life. If I fast forward to coming to North Point, um, I have this clear sense that, that everything that has happened in the past my different ministries, the things that God has allowed me to go through, um, the different kinds of positions that I've had that have moved farther and farther away from music have all been to help prepare me for coming here. And, um, and that's a really cool thing. How do, how do you figure out what your purpose is in life? Um, it is, I think, a combination of um, your giftedness, your passion, and your pain. When you look at your life, when you map out your life, when you look back on the history of your life and you see what God has gifted you to do, your passion about who you want to be, what kind of things you just naturally gravitate to, and the pain that you've experienced and God's role in, in making sense of that, when those three things come together, all of a sudden you begin to see, I think, what your purpose is in life. There's the second application. That's a personal application. What's your purpose in life? The second application is this. 
It's a life-transforming kind of application. It's understanding, when you look at Mark chapter 1, verse 35 to 39, that Jesus' purpose in coming to earth was to save, to rescue, to free you, to free me. Jesus came for me. When Jesus said, no, I've got to go to these other towns to preach, it was because he was thinking of me. I lived in the crowd. I was on, I was on his way. That's incredible. Jesus came to rescue and save and free me from all of the junk of life. He came to rescue me from pain, from trauma, from isolation and loneliness, from guilt and despair. And Jesus came to do that, to save me from that eternally. Not just temporarily, but eternally. That's incredible. The story of Jesus is a story of reconciliation, of bringing man back into relationship with God. Think about it for a second. If you knew that your boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, best friend, whoever it is, if you knew that they were going to say no to other people so that they could spend time with you, how would that make you feel? That's pretty cool to know that they would choose you above anybody else. That's the picture of Jesus. If you knew that your uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, best friend was going to get away, was going was to spend some time away from everybody else to focus exclusively on you, how would that make you feel? That's incredible. That's the picture of Jesus. What we see in, in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 35 to 39, is this picture of Jesus having a clear idea of his purpose in coming to reconcile us, to redeem us, to bring us back into relationship with him. The overriding theme of this series, the Life of the Lake series, is that Jesus loves you. Is that We're not going to look at different stories of Jesus so that we can be like Jesus only. It's so that we can experience his love and that we can respond to that love in an incredible way. In 1991, one of the greatest movies ever made was made, City Slickers. And if you think about City Slickers, I think there is one theme that comes to mind for most people. Billy Crystal on top of the horse talking to Curly. Curly says, you know what the secret of life is? Billy Crystal says, no, what? He says, finger? Billy Crystal says. Curly says, one thing. Just one thing. You stick to that and everything else doesn't mean anything. Billy Crystal says, that's great, but what's the one thing? And Curly says, that's what you've got to figure out. We all live our lives based on something. You do. You've got to figure that out. And the challenge in looking at Mark 1 is to recognize that Jesus understood precisely, so clearly, it was crystal clear for him. You know what? Yeah, all these people want me. Yeah, there's demands being made on my time. I've got to go preach in these other towns because it's part of a bigger picture. But you need that kind of clarity for our purposes in life. There's a, there's a lost world out there. We're going to finish the, the service today with, with something really, really 
scene that fits together in this message perfectly. Eric Williams, in just a second, is going to share his testimony and is going to be baptized. If you've got your Bibles, turn to, to Romans chapter 6. And let, let me just talk about what Eric's doing and how this all fits together. You remember back to the Roman series about our identity in Christ, who we are and the, the relationship that we have with Him, that we don't have to do anything, that we simply just, uh, God loves us. He redeems us. He reconciles us. He changes us. He justifies us. And at the beginning of chapter 6, Paul writes these words. What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin so that grace can increase? By no means. You died to sin. How can you live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who's died has been freed from sin. What, what's, what's being lived out in front of us in the water is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Symbolic, absolutely. But this clear sense of physically uniting with Jesus in baptism. You know, one of the cool things about the New Testament as it describes people coming to faith in their baptism there's not any sense of the religious leaders being the people that did the baptism. It was whoever God had involved in their lives. And so, and so Eric's going to be baptized by Mike Eady, somebody who's invested into him a ton and, and, um, and, and involved in like-on-like relationships. Very, very cool thing. Mike gets the, the opportunity to just help Eric experience what we just read about in Romans 6. Come on down, guys.
Go ahead and stay standing. I'm, I'm just going to say I just come to this for um, knowing your purpose and your why. Understanding that Jesus is our King and Savior. Um, we're going to sing in a second, and in Psalm 6, it just fits so great. Um, if you need to come down and want to pray, um, feel free to do that. Um, God's working. If you want to talk to somebody about taking next steps, um, come come on down. Elders, um, Black Group leaders, we'll find you, we'll pray with you. Um, let's pray. God, uh, we thank you for Eric, for your steadfast pursuit of him, for your grace that covers every good task. God, we thank you that your relationship is not limited to Eric, but with all of us pursue us, to shower your grace on us. You love us in incredible ways. You came to seek and save us. God, may we be people that understand who you are and how much you love us. May we be a church that does that. In Jesus' name we pray. Can be true. His arms so callous. Now I can't choose. I want to run to you. My heart wide open. Make me broken. Make me empty. So I can be still. I'm still holding on to my will. I'm completed. You are with me.
not done. Don't finish with us. Keep working in us. We love you so much. Hey, um, you know, song's done, but if you need somebody to pray or talk to you, don't don't leave. Um, you guys feel free to hang out here. Uh, if you're coming here, if you want to pray with somebody, do that. Have a great week. God loves you incredibly. See you next Sunday. Thank you.